This is the Doctor, President-elect of the High Council of Time Lords. I am definitely a madman with a box. Anyone for Jelly, baby? I'm the Doctor. I'm 904 years old. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Castabras. Hey, hey fans and welcome to the Big Blue Box podcast. My name's Gary. My name's Adam. And we've got a special episode 82. I was waiting for a 82. 82. <laughs> Just like you were waiting for the outro music last week. I wish I had one of those little um, voice modulators that Nick, Nick Briggs had actually. I'll have to get one like, for future things. Voice changer. Oh, what? Yeah, like, um, <laughs> <laughs> what's you can sound like a Dalek or a, an alien or something? I have a little settings on it Dalek setting, Cyberman setting, um, Tractator setting. <laughs> I must admit, when I was doing the sound effects for Merch Corner, you know, the Merch Corner uh, clip? Yeah. It took me ages to find a decent voice changer for the Dalek sound effects. Oh, right. Yeah, I wonder, that. I wonder that if you were having fun doing that. I had to do a bit of research, buddy. Yeah. I had to, um, Go way back to the Radiophonic Workshop wow. and see what tools they used to do it, which obviously is out of my scope. But um, yeah, as a bit of a nerdy fact, I had to get a ring modulator. You got one? I had to find a ring modulator. Oh, right. Which yeah. is obviously quite old and expensive these days. So I had to get a software version. But yeah, it works out pretty well. Yeah, it's good. I bet you've been having a lot of fun with it ever since as well. I did loads of <laughs> I did loads of different things with it as well before I settled on just the simple merch corner thing. Brilliant. Save them for the Christmas tape. We'll have a listen to those. <laughs> Do you know what's what's um what's quite funny though is those ring those like voice changes or sound effect modulators, whatever you want to call it, you still have to try and sound like a Dalek when you're saying it. Oh yeah. In yeah. your own voice sort of thing. Because um, if you just say, like, Merch Corner, Merch Corner, it will just sound like that, even after the thing. So you have yeah. to like put, you have to sort of put everything into it. So you have to be like Merch Corner, <laughs> and just you know, so you still have to do all that stuff, and then it just changes the sound waves, I guess. But I did. Is that what happened to the Daleks in Day of the Daleks? Do you think they just didn't put enough effort in? <laughs> <laughs> they forgot to flick the switch. <laughs> I did loads though. I did like Scaro Boot Sale. Just loads of different <laughs> ones. Oh. I quite like that. Scaro Boot Sale. Scaro Boot Sale, yeah. yeah. Anyways. Anyway. Yes, we've got a slightly different episode for you this week. Mm. Uh, away with the news and the merch. Be gone. The story reviews. We thought we'd bring a special guest on to chat who and all that stuff. Hmm. Uh, so we've wanted to speak to this guy for a while because whenever we've reviewed um, stories from this era, we always bring up the subject of um, what was happening around that time, especially when we reviewed survival. Mm. So we're talking about McCoy and that whole time period when Doctor Who was quite rocky and um, ratings were not as great as they had been in the years previous to that. And it was all sort of uncertain. And then 
this particular person came into it and had his own ideas and his own plan of what he wanted to do with the show and the character and so on. Um, and when they were finding their stride and and all that stuff, the BBC didn't didn't renew the plug instead of I was going to say pull the plug, but as this person said on you know in the interview, they didn't renew the plug as it were. Hmm. So it's been really cool chatting to this guy, dude. Who have we got on the show to interview? So I'm very pleased to welcome the script editor from the Sylvester McCoy era, Mr. Andrew Cartmel. Hi guys, thank you for having me. Uh, it's really great to have you on the show, Andrew. Thanks for um, uh, uh, making the time to come on. We know you're a busy man. No, um, it's, it's a pleasure, buddy. It's a pleasure. Okay, so we wanted to um, fire you a load of questions um, oh. because we've got uh, quite a bit to talk about um, for your time on the show. Good, good. Um, but for the benefit of our listeners who um, who are not up on some of the classic era, the McCoy era, uh, just tell us a bit about your sort of roughly your involvement in the show. and, and Yeah, well, mostly that. I just did the cooking. I made sausages when we were on location. <laughs> the you, you're the Besides, catering guy. <laughs> um, I was the script editor. And in those days, the script editor had an enormous amount of responsibility compared to the role now. So it was more like what they call a showrunner. I mean, they called Steve Moffat a showrunner, uh, which he is. Yeah. And so it was very much like that. Although I would just mention that in America, where the term originated, a showrunner is something different. A showrunner is actually more of a senior producer role as well as being a creative role. So what I basically had was creative control of the scripts. Uh, if I could get John, the producer, to sign off on something, then that was it. I had total freedom in terms of choosing the writers, choosing the stories and everything else. So it was, it was a fantastic role. Uh, and uh, unlike anything today, except, as I say, people like Moffat. Okay, well, that sounds... So you had complete freedom to, to go ahead and make so the show how you saw fit, really. Yeah, and we had very little interference from higher up because nobody... It's hard to for people to grasp us now, but in those days, nobody was interested in Doctor. Nobody cared about it. We were just sort of off in a... At best, we were just off in a corner and left to our own devices. At worst, they wanted to get rid of us, which eventually they did, because right. there was an anti-who feeling. But the point of this is that as long as John Nathan Turner, the producer, was happy with what I was doing, there was no interference from any other quarters, which, in a sense, gave me a much freer hand than people like Steve or um, it'll be Chris Chibnall soon, or Russell, all of whom you know are uh, very strong creative forces, but they have a lot of masters to answer to. I was very lucky, as long as John was happy and he was a good creative collaborative partner for most of the time uh, then it was great it was clear sailing were, were you aware of um the feeling from the hierarchy at the bbc when when you took the job or no, did that kind of uh when I took come into job, it? i just it gradually began to dawn on me that it, we were considered the very uncool kid at school <laughs> right uh, and then it also began to it was really actually only later in later years i began to put together that that Michael Gray had hated the show and tried to mm. kill it. And then eventually it did sort of, it's difficult to say that they killed it off because it's more like they just kind of let it languish and then just did nothing with it. So it wasn't mm. a deliberate killing off effort. It was more like just, we're never going to renew it sort of thing. So just let it, let it kind of fade away. Yeah. So, and the reasons for that over the years, I've begun to sort of have my own theories about that. I think when grade was in power, this was a period when Colin Baker was the doctor. Now, Colin is a terrific actor, and he could have been a great doctor, but there was two things that militated against that. One was the kind of character that they fashioned for him was very unsympathetic. 
like mm. it, it began with this regeneration where I think he came out of it and tried to murder the companion. The yeah. It's <laughs> kind of um, crazed by the process. And this, that's an interesting story device, but I sp- I've spoken to Eric Sayward about it. Eric was my predecessor as the script editor, and he's a very right. clever man, a very good writer. And I've talked to him about it, and the, what happened is they sort of painted themselves into a corner. Because once you start with this kind of nasty, negative, uh, kind of hostile, aggressive doctor, you are kind of stuck with it for a while. They, they kind mm-hmm. of had to work their way out of that corner. And that took time. And so yeah. you, you've kind of wrong-footed yourself from the start by having this unsympathetic figure but that was one problem the other problem which in i know it sounds silly but i think it was just as big was this terrible costume they had and mm. i'll talk to colin about this and i think that there was this sort of fan costume that, that somebody proposed which is all blue i don't know if you've seen it. it's the same outfit but it was all blue yes yeah i've and seen that yeah it's the real time one yeah 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 i mean it's um it's not the greatest costume a doctor ever had but it's it's perfectly serviceable and if they'd gone with that i really do think colin's whole era on the show would have been better so he just colin had the odds stacked against him in terms of the characterization including the costume so you had that uh he was the doctor who was on the screen and then you had some particular stories which i think um raised the hackles of people in the bbc hierarchy and one of those is vengeance on varos which is very interesting because Philip Martin, the writer, uh, is one of my favorite TV writers. And I've actually interviewed him about it. He's a terrific writer. And in many ways, Vengeance on Varus is a, it's, I think it's a superb science fiction adventure. But I don't think it's a good Doctor Who story. And the reason I say that is because it's too nasty. Mm. It's kind of deliberately nasty because it's addressing the issues of, back in those days, they had a thing called video nasties, which was basically, it was a moral panic about, horror movies which were available on, on video okay yeah and that was sort of that was what they were addressing in uh, vengeance on virus it was actually one of the themes of the show was about depicting terrible things on screen because if you've seen it they, they have this kind of video feed that they they send to the populace of people being tormented and tortured so yeah quite nasty near the knuckle subject matter and on top of that the doctor's characterization in it is not not perfect. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken to the writer about this. There's a bit where these guys fall into an acid bath. The doctor doesn't actually push them. They kind of fall in in an attempt to uh, to attack him. And these guys fall in the acid bath. And the doctor has a, a quip along the lines of, I, I won't join you if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> That's that, right. See, if that was James Bond, that would be fine. If that was Arnie Schwarzenegger, that would be fine. But for the doctor to be quite that callous... I think was not good. I mean, I've, I've discussed that with Philip Martin because I thought it might be an ad lib by Colin, but he's, you know, it was scripted and he, he liked that line a great deal. But I don't go with that characterization of the doctor. And the thing I'm getting at here in kind of a long winded way is you had Colin's doctor who had some, you know, the odds stacked against him in terms of appeal already. And then you had some quite savage stories. Vengeance mm-hmm. of also has some really kind of scary stuff where, where um, the companion. Perry is being transformed into this sort of bird-like creature, and oh, yeah. a kind of fairy tale horror thing. And yet, it's really—I could really imagine kids getting scared by it. Now, scaring kids is part of the brief on Doctor Who, but there's ways of doing it. And I—I I think that I don't, I'm not sure, but I've often thought that what happened was that. <laughs> Um, Michael Grade saw Vengeance and Barris and his head exploded. <laughs> I mean, probably the show had been running down for a while because John had sort of got, John had been the producer on it for a long time 
And so it had slightly got into the doldrums. So people weren't wild about it. People in the BBC hierarchy weren't wild about Doctor Who. And then this series of negative things happened. Uh, I think culminating in vengeance on virus. Now, I don't know this for a fact at all. This is just my theory. But something like it, I'm sure, happened. What happened is that the senior people in the BBC didn't like what they were seeing on the screen. Mm. They were fed up with Doctor. They've never respected the show anyway. Because it's science fiction, they consider it a kid's show. And they'd, they'd started to sharpen the knives and look for an opportunity to get rid of it. Yeah. So yeah. I was in my early teens when the Colin Baker era was going out, and I I really didn't like all the violence and sort of um, dark storylines that were coming in as a kid at the time. I mean, I quite like it now, but back then I was kind of like falling out of love with the show a little bit, which is why when Sylvester comes in, I, I absolutely fell back in love with it. I love the McCoy era, but it, but yeah, but I agree there was a lot of there was a lot of needles and knives and things creeping in, a lot of blood. And I was thinking, oh, this is going too far. I mean, Attack of the Cybermen's very violent. It was, yeah. You see, they, what they wanted, John and Eric wanted, is they wanted to, to have good stories, right? And they saw mm. good stories in terms of powerful drama. And they saw powerful drama in terms of violence, which yeah. was the wrong approach. I, I mean, you can have a great deal of darkness and nastiness in Doctor Who, but it's got to kind of be framed within a certain context and part of that context is you've got to feel the doctor is against that nasty stuff and he's helping people and that he's a good guy and that he's sort of this um safe haven for the audience's sympathies and at the time the way that they were developing colin they hadn't got to that point with him so you had nowhere to go you had this nastiness and you had no refuge from it i I feel Uh, and as you say lots of you know violence and sharp knives and stuff and, and I don't think that's the way to do it. I think you can have lots of horror and violence and um, terrifying things and darkness in Doctor Who, but there's just a particular way of doing it, and they, they didn't get it right at that time. Mm. What, what surprises me is JNT was quite um, fickle about what he would allow in the show and would sometimes veto you know, the silliest little thing. And yet uh, it always surprises me some of the stuff he did allow in that, in that era. Yes. It almost feels a little bit like, not that he took his off the ball, but I always sort of think, ooh, you know, it's knowing a, some of the stuff he wouldn't allow in. Fickleness and inconsistency is absolutely right. Mm. I think you see, what would happen was John would get very um, sensitized because there'd be complaints about the violence or whatever, and so he'd be really worried about it. But at other times, he'd just think, oh, that's great. You know, I think, you see, John sort of felt it was all a fantasy, which it is. Uh, I, I, but I don't think he realized what a... That was my cat knocking something off the table. Oh, the cat's in. The cat's here. <laughs> Those are my glasses, damn it. Uh, so they... He sort of, he never quite got what would work and what, you know, what would get him into trouble and what wouldn't. Mm. And so, so sometimes he'd veer too far the other way and like he would, he would refuse the smallest things. And at other times, the classic example was on a show I did called Paradise Towers, which was brilliantly written by Stephen Wyatt, with whom yep. I had lunch yesterday, great writer. Um, and he, we, at that time, there was another moral panic about knife crime, which is entirely understandable you know even today or even more today mm-hmm. it's a terrible issue so but the, the particular panic was about depicting knife crime on screen right and so we knew that this when i say we me and Stephen knew that this was a sensitive issue and so uh when we had the sequence with the resis the resis are the residents of a, a, a tower block which is a sort of degenerate residence they're cannibals and Stephen loves to say also lesbians <laughs> but they appear to be these, these two lovely old ladies so it's a classic kind of fairy tale thing like when you're inv- invited into the gingerbread house 
by the nice old lady who turns out to be a witch. What happens is the doctor's companion, Nell, is sort of taken into the, their flat by these resis, the residents, who turn out to be these, these cannibals who want to eat her. So this is all great stuff. But we knew that there was a sensitivity about knives. So in his script, Stephen very carefully uh, not given the resis knives, uh, you know, because they're going to take her into the kitchen and sort of cut her up and eat her. He had given them... Uh, a trident and a net, like a gladiators would have in the arena. <laughs> these kind of archaic implements, these archaic weapons, which were ideal because they had a kind of an interesting kind of fan, fantasy resonance to them. And also, they're not the kind of things that any kid could get on the street. So it was perfect. However, when it came to shooting the show, uh, we discovered that Nick Mallet, the director, had decided to give the resis these huge, great, sharp kitchen knives, and John had totally approved it and mm-hmm. Stephen and I went to John to say hey, look we deliberately kept knives out of the script uh, for this reason and John said no 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 it'll be fine it, it looks great you know it's, and it, they did look very sinister and menacing so we said okay and then they'd shot the show they transmitted it and there was this huge outcry because <laughs> you know it featured knives and I've always remembered that partly because John afterwards said you were right we were wrong which was incredibly good of him because almost nobody in the world, especially a television producer, will ever admit to being wrong about anything. So John could make these mistakes, but he could also be quite good about them. That's um, for the benefit of our listeners, we're referring to um, John Nathan Turner, uh, who was the um, the producer on the show when you were uh, uh, during yeah. your tenure. Um, for a, for a huge length of time, wasn't he? Yeah. So what, what was your... Years or something? Sorry, carry on. Yeah. What was your relationship like with John when you first joined? Um, was there any... Did you see eye to eye immediately or was there creative differences? We didn't see eye to eye immediately, but we did eventually. Because you have to remember, we were like two guys, two soldiers in the same foxhole under shelling from enemy fire. <laughs> so yeah. that we rapidly formed a bond right. united against the world. But we didn't always agree. Um, uh, and we did occasionally have arguments and fallings out, but we always fell back in again. And the thing was, that was good about John, I mean, the thing that was bad about John is that he had a temper and you couldn't, you know, he'd be sweet as pie one moment, then he'd snap. Uh, like you could, couldn't predict it. And I, I always put it down to the fact that he was a serious heavy drinker and booze always gives people bad tempers and makes them a bit emotionally unstable. So, but also he was under huge pressure that making the show was an, an enormously pressured business and his personal life was like a minefield, like uh, his dad was seriously, all this stuff was going on. So uh, there were reasons for John being a bit emotionally um, short-tempered, a bit unstable. Right. Uh, and, and so, but, but that's not an ideal thing for your partner that you're working with, your work partner, you know, if you or your boss, which is what he was. So that wasn't ideal, but this sounds like I'm painting a picture of him as a difficult person. 90% of the time, he was fine. And the great thing was, well, a couple of great things. John was always open to giving new talent a chance. That's why I got the job. And equally importantly, he let me hire all these new writers. When I first sat down, John had some writers he wanted me to look at, people he wanted to work with. And when they didn't pan out with me, I didn't think they were right. He was fine. He, he could have insisted that I work with these people and he didn't. So, I mean, the only thing I've really got against John in that area is that he stuck me with Pip and Jane Baker. It was <laughs> a story called Time and that You Laugh. Yeah. Some people love that story and I always say I won't take any credit for it. But also, if you don't like it and I don't like it, I won't take any blame because it was just – if I'd had proper script editor powers on that, proper autonomy – 
I would not have done that script with those writers. I would have done anything but. So that's the one real grievance I have against John in the area of working with writers is that I had to do, I had to allow Time and the Rani to happen. However, having said that, um, he was really good at, from that, after all, that was when I just arrived on the show. Um, I had no experience and he had worked with these writers a lot before. So that's his reason for insisting on it. After that, he let me have completely, completely free reign with which writers I wanted to hire and which stories I wanted to do. Every story and every writer had to be approved by him, but he wasn't unreasonable about that. So I would say, like taking it all together, I'd say John was a terrific producer because he gave me a lot of creative freedom. He seldom interfered. Uh, and compared to the sort of hoops you'd have to jump through today, it was an amazingly good situation. I'm just thinking, yes, um, like Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis, I bet they would have loved to have had that that amount of freedom, you know, yeah, to that, do what they wanted, really. Absolutely. And that freedom goes hand in hand with the fact that nobody cared about the show. So we, we could do anything we wanted as so long as we didn't have giant knives on it, effectively. <laughs> These days, because it's a hit, it's much more under scrutiny. So I don't know if that situation could ever return. Right. Did, did you feel like you'd found your feet by the time you'd, you'd sort of got time the Rani out the way? Did you, was it sort of like from Paradise Towers onwards? Yes, was that kind of, you felt more comfortable. Absolutely. And as soon yeah. as we started getting hitting, you see, there were still problems with Paradise Towers um, chiefly. And I don't want to sound um, negative about Bonnie Langford, who's a very good actress and she's done some fantastic work with Big Finish subsequently. But the character she played was dreadful. I mean, the character of Mel was just thought she was a screamer, <laughs> she was frilly. If you wind back to look at Mel's characterization the way she was conceived she's supposed to be a computer scientist you can yeah. do interesting things with that character but they didn't so bonnie's persona which had been carried over from the just williams stories is that what they're called uh, oh yeah yeah uh, which was as a sort of screamy girl uh combined with the lack of development of the male character meant that the companion was not a strong companion so that was one of the flaws of paradise towers there were other problems richard Briers, who who's a magnificent actor was allowed to eat the scenery. In my yeah. Opinion. Uh, because, and I think that's because Nick Mallett, who was a very nice man and could be an extremely talented director, I don't think he, he could stand up to a star. Uh, right. I don't think, I think he was just too, too polite to say to Briars, turn it down, mate, yeah. from 11 to 3, which is what it needed. And so there are these various problems with it. There's some problems with the design. The robots that are supposed to be chasing people, the robot cleaners, sort of trundle along at a gentle pace. You know, they could never catch anybody. <laughs> but these, you know, having said all that, having said all that, um, I, Paradise Star, I did begin to feel we got it right because we'd got a good writer and a good story and uh, we'd escaped Time of the Rani. And, we were, and mm. I mean, it's a much more interesting situation, isn't it? I mean, Time of the Rani is sort of a standard kind of um, space opera, pulpit science fiction on a distant planet. This is set on a recognizable, it's a, an alien planet, it's a recognizable environment. It's this high rise ghetto, which we could all relate to. So, instantly, which was Stephen's brilliant concept, which is a much better setting for Doctor Who story. You had the kid gangs, the Kangs, which I'm very fond of. Oh, yeah, I love so, the Kangs. Yeah. And so all the, and then, you know, they, they spray paint the TARDIS. There's lots mm-hmm. of great things in that. So, yes, in answer to your question, we've begun to hit our stride with Paradise. I, lo- I love the world that we were brought into in Paradise Towers. Like you said, there's so many characters and stuff in that story. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And just going back to Time the Rani, I've, I have found myself defending it a little bit because despite all the faults it had and everything, it was the fact that um, 
I enjoyed it so much as a kid at the time that I still enjoy it now. I can totally see all the, you know, why you were clean to get it out of the way and, and, and all that. But um, yeah, it was just this new doctor having Sylvester blast onto the screen. And because I had sort of um, not really enjoyed much of the Colin era for me, when time the Rani came on, I, I just, it was a breath of fresh air to me, but so, yeah, yeah. I do get a lot of stick for liking it, but it's more of a sort of nostalgia thing. And I, it's just Sylvester coming on and all, all that, but I agree things, Paradise Towers has got a different feel to it, and you do feel a progression, I think, from there onwards. I, I think so. In just to return to um, Tom and Ronnie for a second, it, the actors were terrific. I wish they'd been given more to do. Mm-hmm. And also the design. I think mm-hmm. it's Jeff Powell. You may have to check that, but the designer was absolutely brilliant. He'd won a BAFTA for a story about, uh, for a play about Kafka, which I think was called, um, it wasn't called The History Man, but it was called something like that. And yeah. So he just won a BAFTA, and his designs were just superb. I mean, stunning, stunning designs. So there were good aspects to that story. But yeah, um, let's let's draw a, a veil over it. Yeah, let's, see. let's draw a veil over that giant brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was John's idea. There's no giant brain in the original script, and John said at one point in the script meeting, "You know what this story needs? It needs you know it needs a giant brain in it." And he, <laughs> this kind of, and he was right. He, what, he had this good instinct for kind of. Um, Again, to use the term pulp science fiction, not in a derogatory way, but you kind of need the, these big, crazy, um, spooky concepts in Doctor Who. If if I had my way, Andrew, that brain would be in my house right now because I was at a <laughs> I was at an auction where it was there and oh. I wanted to bid on it, and my other half was, you know, severely holding my arm. <laughs> so if I had my way, it'd be it in the did hallway. Pulsate a but... treat. It's pulsating powers <laughs> might be a bit reduced. This it looked bat- a bit battered. I have to be honest. Trion, yeah, but it was impressive. Yeah. <laughs> have you got any props from? Uh, did you uh, oh, steal it, anything, it, Andrew? Terrible. Yeah. I, I I used to. I used to have a dragon's head from um, Time of the Rani because I don't know if you, you you've seen the the, uh, the building. It had this kind of crazy kind of Viking aesthetic with these slightly abstract dragon's heads, and I used to have one of those, which was gorgeous. It used to be hanging in my hallway in London, uh, and that's gone uh, sadly. And, and more heartbreakingly still, I actually had a Ken crossbow, which was a beautiful prop. Again, gone. Oh. Sorry, I do have, uh, but I do have a baby tetrap. If anybody out there, oh, nice. I call them babies because they, they were actually to cheat the camera. They, they sort of had miniatures to hang in the background. They hang upside down like bats. Oh, uh, okay, yes, in the back of shot. Yeah. So you had these miniatures, and so I've got one of those, which you know it might turn up on eBay one day. Oh know? wow. Yes, what? open to offers, guys, and it's in beautiful condition. So that, <laughs> but that's the extent of it. I, I wish I'd filled a, a warehouse with those props, both for sentimental and financial reasons. <laughs> well, what was the th- what was the thing that Ben Aronovich uh, stole? I was reading in your book. Didn't he steal something from I, one I, of the props, or was it something I, else? I think <laughs> using the word steal is probably... Sorry, not steal, no. <laughs> salvage would be the salvage, yeah. All this stuff is up in a skip. Um, I can't remember what Ben might have gone for. Was it something from, from the Dalek story? It must be, yeah. I'm trying to think. What well, was it? Something from Battlefield? I can't remember now. just remember seeing in your, in your book that he took something, uh, salvaged something as well. I remember I just having a vision of you guys of all this. I'm sure he doesn't pops. have that either anymore. What a shame. I'd love to know what it was. If, if, it, if we could have chosen one thing, it would have been the special weapons Dalek, but I think somebody right. else got that. It might not have been Ben, actually. I might be doing him an injustice now, but yeah. The thing about Ben is that he was, I think, one of the greatest Doctor Who writers ever, but like me, he wasn't really a fan of the show as such so he wouldn't have been one you know he wouldn't have been particularly um gunning to fill his his life with memorabilia 
Right. It probably wasn't Ben then. I've probably done him an injustice there. But uh, I, do you know, just while we're talking about Ben, actually, I'd love to see him write for the new series. And I think I've heard you say somewhere that he's got this brilliant idea for a he script. He's got a great story, yeah. uh, which we discussed years and years ago. And it's perfect. Um, but the, uh, I'm slightly guarded talking about it because I was at a little... A little event in in North London, and I mentioned this. I said Ben has this great idea for a story, and there was a local newspaper reporter there, and he reported this as Ben Aronovich has been commissioned to do a story for Doctor. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know what has happened to standards of journalism, but you've got to be very careful about what you say. And then there was this sort of whispering campaign on Twitter. People were, were sort of had latched onto this, and I had to sort of come down hard and say no. He's got a great idea. It's in his head. It isn't anywhere else except in his head. Uh, I actually went up to Steve Moffat a couple of years ago at one of the Christmas screenings at the uh, the BFI. And I said, oh, Ben's got this great idea for a Doctor Who story. And Moffat just laughed. He just laughed. Really? He sort of laughed in an enigmatic way. Oh. So, so I have no idea what that meant. Did it, did it mean? Uh, but it, what it didn't mean was, tell me the story, Andrew. Let's get Ben in. You know. Yeah. So I. So um, that's a shame because I would I would love to see that, and I'm really intrigued to know what this idea is with, is because obviously Ben does the brilliant Rivers of London. And I keep thinking he'll he'll get bored soon, and whatever it is, he'll just put it into another story, and then it won't make it to Doctor Who. So. It's probably uniquely a Doctor Who concept. Oh, okay. I don't go into it because it would blow it. Right. I want to tell you the title, which is a great title. Oh, but but uh, and Ben's moved beyond Doctor Who now. I'm sure if they, I'm sure if they made me the showrunner and or Ben the showrunner, which would be a mm. great idea, uh, and got us to work on the show, he would dust it off quite quickly. But that isn't the situation at the moment, so it's going to have to remain in the background. But yeah, Ben could write a great great Doctor, as could Mark Platt. Actually, they should hire him on yes. immediately. Uh, you mentioned uh, a minute ago, Andrew, that. Um uh, ben wasn't a particular fan of the show uh, before he was uh, started work on it. Was that the same for you? Did you say you weren't? Did you not really watch yeah, much it, of it? All? It, it was it was part of the fabric of our childhood. I mean, Doctor Who was just there. Um, I, I compared to things like the the mini, the car, the mini, and the, indeed the mini skirt and the Beatles and James Bond. It was all part of that great British sixties thing. Right, and I did see some really seminal episodes when I was a kid. I saw the um, first Hartnell Dalek story. I saw the episode where they captured the Dalek and take it apart. And that completely, uh, as, as I've often said before, blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I had some Doctor Who annuals, so it was part of my childhood. But I, I, I didn't follow it. I didn't watch it. I mean, after I was a teenager, then I was at university, I really wasn't watching television at all. Oh, of course. <laughs> you wouldn't have been watching much TV at that time. Well, and in those days, there was no time shifting, by which I mean you, you couldn't record off telly. Because, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this is going to sound astonishing to your listeners, but um, we, we VHS, they probably don't even remember VHS. It was a tape that you could record things off the television. <laughs> that really, had, the, the situation with VHS, when I came into the BBC to start work on Doctor Who, if you wanted the VHS machine, there was a special BBC VHS machine which was chained to a trolley <laughs> with a television attached to it. So if you wanted to watch a, a tape of something, you had to go to a special room and get the special trolley with a special VHS machine strapped to it and sign it out and trundle it to your office because that's how special <laughs> home recording of video was. In those days. So this is all by way of sort of making a special plea as to one reason why I hadn't seen so much of Doctor Who was just there wasn't the opportunity. I think some of our younger listeners will will not relate to that, but I can absolutely relate to it because mm. in my primary school, uh, my my teacher used to send me and um, 
and another friend of mine down to the uh, down to the room to get the the TV, which was on the trolley with the video machine. A room of doom with the VHS machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the so we spoke about John Nathan Turner um, and your relationship with him. Let's speak a little bit um, about Sylvester now. Yeah. Oh yes. So you would have worked relatively closely, I would assume, with Sylvester. Yeah, I was there when they were casting for a new doctor. And John, again, this was great of him because he didn't have to do it. He, he enlisted me. So I was sort of sat in the room while he got people in as prospective doctors. And Sylvester was always the front runner. Like from the moment we saw him, we both wanted him to be the doctor. He was just so perfect for it. So I was gunning for Sylvester from the start. I wrote the audition pieces, which Sylvester and, and some other actors did. They got some actors in to do these auditions and record them. Uh, to film them and that they got Janet Fielding as the sort of co-star in these but I was the guy who wrote these two audition pieces that Sylvester and the other actors did and uh, I remember the hair going up on the back of my neck as, as I heard my words being spoken by Sylvester it was just it was wonderful and then we got him which was a triumph we got the doctor we wanted and then became the business of trying to work out how to use him best because if you look at Tom Narani he's doing pratfalls he's being a clown mm. He doesn't know what to do. None of us knew what to do because it was all new to us. In Paradise Towers, things begin to settle down a bit. And by the time of Dragonfire, I'd say, and this is probably partly because Sophie comes on more than that story, I thought we'd begun to really get it right in terms of Mm. his characterization. You must have been quite excited, actually, I think, by the next series, I would assume, because the dynamic between Sylvester and Sophie is just fantastic. So I guess when, when you're thinking about new writers for the... For the Sylvester's next series, you were just thinking, right, let's let's do this. Let's get into it, you know. But you have to, uh, that's a natural thing for you to think have it, mm. on the outside of it. But, but on the inside of it, by the time we'd got Sophie, we already had the stories for next season because you're oh, right. always working ahead. Yeah. So as soon as I knew what kind of um, companion we had, by the time Sophie had joined, all, all the scripts were being were written or being written for the next season so it was like it's a mad downhill motor race it's like wacky races when you're making (laughs) it never stops so yes it was all in process and then you sort of discover you you want things to work out like you want to get sylvester as the doctor and you want him to work out as the doctor then you want to create a new companion called ace uh, and you want to get then you see sophie is, is is you know the prospective actress for that you want to get sophie and then you want to get the character developed and you want these things to work out but but we had no idea how well they'd work out. It was just like this joyous discovery. It's like, you know, it works. We wanted to do something and it actually worked. It was a fantastic situation. But both your uh, audition pieces you just mentioned, they actually did find their way into the show eventually, didn't they? Yeah, that, that was kind of interesting. And just if anybody's interested in knowing what these are, you can borrow or better yet buy a copy of Script Doctor because they're included in the back of the book. Yeah, so um, well, what happened with those was uh, Sylvester really fell in love with the uh, with this one. I'd written this one. There were two scenes. And in fact, I think only one of them really found its way into the show. One was a confrontation. You see, what basically they were hard and soft. There was this confrontation where the doctor meets this female despot, this tyrant, this dictator. And, mm. and you know, no prizes for guessing that I had Maggie Thatcher in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I wrote it, I, I think I just called her the Iron Lady. <laughs> so there's a scene where he stands up to this, this baddie. So that was one. But the other, to give emotional range, because you needed to see what the actor was capable of, the other um, audition piece was completely different. And it was about, it was a farewell scene between the Doctor and the Companion. And it was 
Um, the doctor, and, and yeah, I'm getting a little tingle thinking about it. I think I did a really good job. I was inspired in that case by Alan Moore, who'd done this brilliant thing in Watchmen about Dr. Manhattan and about, and about his the way he looks at time and it sees it all happening at once. And I thought, well, the doctor must be like that because, mm-hmm. he, he, because he's a time traveler and he has, has such longevity. His view of the world must be very different from us. So there, there was this, this I, I knew I could write this very poetic farewell scene and I did a good job on it and everybody's very pleased with it and Sylvester loved it and he kept trying to get it to the show because he felt it was one of the best things he'd done and eventually he did manage to crowbar it in <laughs> to Dragonfire but I, I think what you, when you're mentioning the other one you're probably thinking of the Happiness Patrol are you? Yes I am yeah Yeah. Yes. well we didn't actually ever use any of that material uh, in the Happiness Patrol but just it was a similar sensibility in the fact mm. that we had a female villain that I encouraged the uh, the writer Graham Curry to to, to uh, base on Maggie Thatcher, who was my like my bet noir at the time. <laughs> right. So, so um, only one of those ended up in the show, really, which was the Dragonfire one. What happened was Sylvester wanted to do that scene, and I I felt it was wrong to you know just to take my scene and cut and paste it into uh, Ian Briggs's excellent script. So we got mm. Ian to write a similar scene, but what happened was. Um, Sylvester wanted the original and we eventually at some point somebody in the production team for Dragonfire said oh can we just have a look at that 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 scene you wrote for Sylvester we just want to have a little look at it so I gave it to him next thing I knew it was being photocopied and pasted into the script and um that I'm sure that that was a nuisance for Ian you know no writer's wild about having words added to their script but I'm quite proud of it because it did work well and it's like one of the one of the few little scenes of my own writing which had got into the show i was very noble when i was working on the show because i could have hired myself to do endless scripts but i felt it was more important to get new writers on board mm. which was the right decision um morally but financially wasn't the best <laughs> right <laughs> so it's nice to have these bits like the, the bit at the end of um survival which i wrote too it's nice yeah. that I, I wrote a, a few small scenes a few small bits of dialogue but they were very resonant bits of dialogue so i'm very proud of those because the other one, the, yeah, the one you were just referring to is Mel's leaving scene, isn't it? At the end of Dragonfire, where it's funny thing time. Yeah. And basically exactly. the Doctor just not wanting to say goodbye. And it, yeah, it's a lovely little scene. Days like crazy paving. That was the image. Oh, yes. And what's the hugging shadow? No. What's the other line? Yeah. I, can't I, I, I wrote it myself and I can't remember. <laughs> is it like, so not hugging shadows. I can't think what it is, but yeah. There is one about fighting with shadows at some point. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lovely little scene. Was, was uh, Sylvester aware of the sort of pressure of taking over as a new doctor from, you know, because obviously with all the things that had gone on during the Colin Baker era, all the well, hiatus in brackets, all that, was he aware that he was sort of the new, you know, the, the, the sort of the boulder that he was going to have to bear on his shoulders for taking over? Well, you'd, what you were talking about is the sort of um, burden of disapproval at the BBC amongst the powers that be. Is that what you mean? Mm. Uh, yeah. No, what, so, no, much more important than that was when you become the doctor, you're not really ready for the level of public scrutiny and yes. fame, which is going to come sweeping into your life. And John would have briefed him about that, uh, and no, but nobody could prepare him for that. No, the thing about the BBC's disapproval was it's sort of something that came and went, and it mostly manifested itself as ignoring the show and not giving it any resources. So it wasn't like there was this guy waiting around the corner with a hatchet. It wasn't like that. It's more like they just didn't like us, didn't care about us, and didn't want to help us. Uh, then eventually decided to pull the plug or not renew the plug, as it were. But no, it, what Sylvester wasn't prepared for was the the tsunami of, of uh, fame that was going to come his way. 
Right. Yeah, because that's why I thought. I just thought, you know, him thinking, right, I've got to get this right or, you know, it's going to get another hiatus sort of thing. I no, just no, no, it, no yeah. be aware of that. Uh, it was mm. always just a background thing. That was, it was never stated as such either. It was just this kind of general lack of love of the show. Mm. So you, you, you pushed quite heavily for Sylvester right from the beginning. So that first um, audition, you know, you were, sounds like you were smitten with him really and you wanted him in the role. Yeah, he was great. But John too, because we both just saw that he was perfect for it. So it was, I, in the case of John, I was pushing at an open door. We, or rather, we were both pushing in the same direction. Right. It was just a case whether we'd get the nod from the higher up echelons, and we did. So it was great. And if Sylvester hadn't have auditioned, can you reveal any other actors that went for that? The only name I remember is Ken Campbell. And Ken Campbell was actually um, Sylvester's mentor. Ken was this crazy, brilliant, mad genius who ran something called the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool, which did um, such great, incredible stage shows as the Illuminatus, the Illuminatus trilogy. Uh, and also they did The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I believe, on stage. Mm. Anyway, these were legendary shows, crazy shows. I, did, I saw one which is an adaptation of a uh, Howard Lovecraft's story, sorry, an H.P. Lovecraft story called The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Anyway, Ken Campbell, this brilliant uh, force in the theatre, he came in and auditioned for it, and he was kind of too powerful and too scary. I, I felt like he was a bull in a china shop. I, I think it would be possible for somebody like him to be a, a terrific doctor, but it was not the characterization we were looking for. Anyway, we'd already found Sylvester and, and were in love with him. But yeah, Ken Campbell was a very interesting possibility too. Okay. And did you have a similar feeling with Sophie? Yeah. Now, Sophie was just perfect, and Ace was the perfect character, but John kept his options open by developing another female character, similar, because the, after the... I figure you've got two kinds of companions. they are screamers and there's fighters. So we had Ace in Dragonfire, and we also had Ray, who's this sort of motor, chick on a motorcycle in Dalton the Bannerman. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. And Sarah Griffiths, I believe, was the actress. And, and good character, created by Malcolm Cole, and a good actress. Uh, but John just sort of, he developed these two slightly similar characters in parallel, just so he could keep his options open. He didn't want to bet all his, his chips on, uh, all his gambling chips on Sophie. But in the end, we went with Sophie, which was great and the right decision. How close did Ray become to becoming the companion? Well, I don't think very, because right. while I was telling you that anecdote, I was just running through my head, because, you see, the thing about Ace was they got, John got me to create the character of Ace for the reason that if it was, cre- if you have this companion created by a freelance writer, they get paid every time the character is used, quite rightly. Mm. But if, if she's created by some poor stooge like me who's on a staff contract, it's, the, the character is owned by the BBC. But yeah. in the case of Ray, I don't think we did anything like that and Malcolm would have owned the character. So it, although that would have been a possibility, I think that it was pretty unlikely. I think that John, John, this might have just been leverage with Sophie's agent partly, you know, so that, that they didn't assume it was a done deal that Sophie would become the companion. And also it, it did allow a plan B, you know, in case of mm. emergency, break glass and, and get other, uh, other companions. We, we, we recently reviewed um, Delta and the Bannerman, didn't we, Gary? And uh, yeah. one thing we thought about that is it looked an awful lot of fun, that, that story to make, because it's, it's just bubbling with energy. And I, I just, I don't know, I just get the impression you guys had a ball down in, well, we in did, Barry Island down there. Well, Barry Island, so it was like a bit of a holiday. And there was, there was we had a fun party there, you know, like um, cast and crew parties on location are, are a hoot. 
And we mm. had, I remember having a really nice time. It was good weather, which always helps because you're yeah. shooting in pouring rain. And also we had this great cast like Don Henderson as Gavrock. He was so good, man. Oh, yeah. I love Don Henderson. <laughs> He's just brilliant. You know, I'm getting, getting goosebumps just thinking about it. So uh, there were a lot of great things we got right in the story. And uh, the, the writer, Malcolm Cole, and I were down on location. And we stayed there. And we, had, we had a great time. So it was a lot of fun. Um, it, I think that story suffers a little bit from being a bit too lighthearted and camp. The, the camp is mostly John's instigation, but it's got a lot of great things in it. The 50s um, setting and scene was a, was a really smart move. But I love the, the space bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the crazy space bus, which got oh, yeah. blown up with all the space tourists killed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't laugh terrible, really, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Them being killed, I mean. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're killing Ken Dog, which is always fun. Oh, poor old Ken. Yeah. yeah. No, so it's a fun story that one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Malcolm, Malcolm is a terrific writer. So I, but it, we were still finding our way, and we still had Bonnie. And again, I don't want to sound nasty about Bonnie, but the character of Mel wasn't great. So if we'd had, uh, you know, a proper kick-ass companion already in place, it would have helped that story. Absolutely. Actually, at what point yeah. was because um, you were saying about how things are planned quite far ahead? At what point did you decide, or did Bonnie decide that she was going to go and, and you were going to get a new companion? When did that start? I think that would have been in John's mind from as soon as he knew the, the season was going to go. He, he had a new right. doctor, so you don't change the companion at the beginning of the season. Mm. I think he felt it was kind of all change. And right. Once you get a new doctor, you sort of want to get a companion who's suited to them. So you have one season while they. You have the old companion for continuity, so it's not mm. alienate viewers, and then you start ringing the changes. You, uh, just to rewind just a second, uh, you mentioned that um, you were down on location, uh, Barry Island and so on. Uh, were you involved quite heavily on location for many of the, the, the stories with, with shooting and so on, or were you kind of desk-bound that some, some writers can I started can off going on location partly because it was novelty, and I loved it, partly because I had the time, but I got more and more busy. Right. And novelty wore off, wore off. So I went less and I was on location less and less uh, as as the series progressed. Okay. And was that something that um, did it have an effect on, on anything? Because uh, I have the feeling that with some um, uh, script editors or producers, that there can be a sense of um, wanting to sort of you know it's your baby kind of thing and you don't want anything to go wrong well the great thing about british television is that they're they're not allowed to change anything without consulting you and Mm. by you i mean the script editor the producer and the writer right so there might have been some even minor changes are supposed to be fed back through the script office so i didn't feel that there was much danger of things going awry except in the sense that the director can screw things up not by changing the script but, but by not shooting things properly and there's there's nothing you do about that except getting you know once you've got the director you're stuck with that right sure and did, did it feel like sorry go no go on adam i was gonna say did it feel like you were sort of going from strength to strength i mean when we get into sylvester's second series with you know remembrance and great show in the galaxy and then further on towards curse of fenric and and uh, ghostlight and that i mean that's some amazing stories did you sort of just feel like once you got into that second series that you were really on a roll I did feel that, and I felt it for the mm. reason that I'd got the writers I wanted. Once I got Ben on board, once mm. I knew that we could get Ian again because he'd done such a great job on Dragonfire, mm. Mark Platt was shaping up nicely, and Stephen we'd already worked with. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I felt it was going well because I had these writers that I wanted doing scripts that I thought were terrific. So, yeah, it, it began to feel really good. And did, did you? And were you seeing it on screen? Because sometimes, um, you know, it, the, the story is there, but perhaps it didn't always translate on screen 
because of budget or or whatever. But did were you sort of seeing it? I mean, I think Remembrance Daleks is is incredible. Yeah, and I can just watch it over and over again. I think it looks great, and you can you can feel the love that's gone into it, considering the budget you guys had at the time. And actually, a lot of what what we see. Uh, in those, you know, the last two seasons of Doctor Who is just incredible what you managed to produce given what you were working with at the time. And, you know, did you think that when you're watching it back? Sort of think, right, yeah. God, this is good. You know, this is good there stuff. There was a long time lag between the script and the shooting, but but, mm. but as soon as they start shooting, you begin to see bits and pieces even before it's fully edited. And so in the case of the Dalek story, which I, I think is, if I have to nominate my favourite, that's the one that's on top most often. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a real classic. Yeah, so Remembrance, I just knew we were doing really well. So that was great. And then by the time we got to the third season, we got the kind of roster of directors we, we wanted. Uh, yeah, it was all starting to come together, thank heavens, at last. Yeah, and all the ideas that are bubbling around in those stories are just amazing. Like you said about the writers you managed to get, but the sort of ideas behind the stories that they were coming up with are, are just great. It's not easy coming up with a Doctor Who. I, well, sometimes it is. And when um, Stephen White walked into the office, he had the idea for a story set in a tower block from the off. So sometimes it is easy, and sometimes it's, it's really difficult. Like with the, with the Happiness Patrol, it took a long time for us to come up with a story from Graham. But yeah, it, it, a Doctor Who, an ideal Doctor Who story idea it is really a thing to be treasured because it's a mm. tough show to come up with something for. Mm. How, how close did, um, did the Happiness Patrol come to being filmed in black and white i think i remember reading somewhere that initially you were thinking to do it very sort of no, um, it, it never could there's, there's no possible uh, could ever have happened this was so the, i like that idea uh, just minimal colors coming through i think it's such a nice idea but yeah i guess it wasn't i think it's just an idea yeah it was going to be shot in this there's a film uh, starring orson wells by carol reed called the, the third man yeah uh and that was that was a black and white story shot with lots of kind of crazy camera angles, very noir, film noirish. I think there was some discussion for it being shot like that, and somebody might have got the impression that we were also going to shoot it in black and white. Hmm. That couldn't really happen. And, you know, the Happiness Patrol, you couldn't shoot that in black and white because it's supposed to be about this garishly colored planet where yeah. it's, you know, false happiness. So I don't think black and white would have been the way to go. I just remembered actually that Candyman was also at that auction uh, that the brain was at. I remember so. I, was, <laughs> I remember wanting him as well. Yeah, don't, don't put your money on the brain, mate. Go for the Candyman. Candyman. Yeah, it still amazes me that that how much that resembled a, a certain suite and how that actually yeah. came to be on screen. You, well, when you saw it, did you think, oh, what? <laughs> I, well, we hadn't really. What we'd specified in the script for the Candyman was. If anybody ever ate that cheap bubble gum that used to come with stickers and cards, there used to be this cheap pink bubble gum that you got. If, if you, I don't know if you had bubble gum cards in this country, but basically, yeah, you got, yeah, you got these little novelties, and they came with a, a free. Supposedly, they came free with a piece of bubble gum, but everybody threw the gum away. It was this hideous pink, terrible kind of chemical bubble gum. Mm-hmm. We sort of saw the Candy Man. Graham Curry and I saw the Candy Man as sort of having a smoothly contoured surface made of this kind of pink bubblegummy stuff. <laughs> that was our concept. If you imagine maybe kind of a Michelin man or some kind of stay puffed man, kind of smooth, slightly bloated figure made of pink bubblegum. <laughs> but what we got was completely different. And when I saw it, I thought two things. I thought, one, wow, that looks great. And B, we're going to get so sued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a Bertie Bassett kind of thing. I yeah. loved it, but I thought, you know, we're in trouble here. And indeed, there was eventually some kind of fracas and settlement regarding that. But that doesn't in any way 
uh, militate against it being a fantastic design. I thought it was great. Oh, he's a great character. Yeah, his love the candy. And the way his eyes spin, I just... And the voice as well and all that. Oh, it's brilliant. It's uh, Andrew, I wanted to um, ask you something um, yes. that uh, <laughs> has been... You've probably heard this a million times, um, probably at conventions and other interviews and stuff, but there's, there's this phrase that um, I've been reading up on uh, recently called... Uh, the the Cartmel Master Plan, <laughs> mm, which, yep. which you're probably very familiar with, um, and it's a, we spoke earlier about um, uh, when Colin was on the show and how uh, at that time it was a little bit sort of close to the knuckle and it was a little bit dark and so on, and then when you came on board and Sylvester started and so on, um, did what was there a point because this this term has obviously been labelled because you had some some great ideas for the show and for the doctor and where you wanted to take and what direction you wanted to take it in. Um, is that something that you would, that you would have liked to have been on the show longer to put in place? And that whole sort of Cartmel master plan, was that something that you did as you went along or did you have that right from the off? Like, right. I know what I want to do with this character. And no, I had some strong ideas to start with and they were good. I had good instincts from the off, but I sort of formulated more, specific precepts as I went along. I sort of saw what worked, I saw what needed fixing, I saw which way we needed to go. And principally, this was to do with giving the Doctor stature and mystery again. Instead right. of, I felt it'd become too down-to-earth, literally. And so it was reinvesting the, the character with his original mystery and, and a, and a t- touch of darkness, too, I felt. So that was, if there was a Cartmel Masterplan, it was, it was to do that. Uh, and that, it gradually became clear that that was the way to go with it. And you said, would I have liked to have carried on to achieve it? Well, I think we did achieve that in the third season with Sylvester. Well, I would like to have rounded it out and for us to have developed the character more and for us to have handed over from Sophie to a new companion and done various things. But we didn't. Uh, and the fact that we didn't in no way detracts from what we did achieve. Okay. Um, and was um, uh, John on board with that as well? Did he? Well, you you know. have to remember that there wasn't actually a, like a, a file folder labeled the Cartmel Master Plan. <laughs> yeah. It was just yeah. me trying a bunch of stuff and doing a bunch of stuff with the help of the writers and the support of John and what we achieved. Uh, but it's true that John did see we we're pushing in a certain direction. At one point, he actually said to me, "I'm letting you push this character as far as I can" because he was he was reluctant about something I wanted to do. And it's true he he and he, you know he was, he was a bit he was a bit grumpy about that, but. He did. He did. He let me. He let me have this huge latitude with the character. You know, I was, had all this stuff that he wasn't. He was more than a time lord. All this business. At one point, John got a little bit touchy, and he said something along the lines of, "Oh, I'm letting you push this character as far as you you have already. It's, you know, you you know, you're, you're really pushing it." Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what I wanted to do at that point, but it, uh, it sort of made me realize that he was giving me enormous freedom. And he, he was aware that I was making changes, quite radical changes to the way the show had been. But he obviously approved, otherwise he would have stopped me. I forget what specifically he was reacting against at some point. Sure. It might have been the bit where, in remembrance, where the, the doctor actually just pulls out a gun and blows up a Dalek. Ah, it, yes, yeah. yeah. Or it might have been something else. But uh, I do, I do love the the vision of you going over to a big cabinet, though, Andrew, and opening it and pulling out a folder with the Cartmel Master Plan on it. I mean, if only it had been that organised, mate. But it, it was, it, you know, I didn't hear the term. What happened was I went to a convention called Gallifrey One in Los Angeles years later. It might have been about 1999, and I was on a panel with uh, Paul Cornell, 
And Paul Cornell said, have you ever heard the term the Cartmel Master Plan? I said, no, I hadn't. But then eventually when I gleaned what people were talking about, I thought, yeah, that makes absolute sense. There was mm. there was a Cartmel Master Plan, and what it was was, as I said before, to, to reinvigorate the doctor. Uh, but it was never a kind of formal de facto thing. It was, it was just it was just it was what I was doing in a, in a fairly disorganized way, summed up in a much more coherent fashion. Right. Mm. Okay. And um, since leaving the show and um, and the various other works that you've done, you've you've continued work on Doctor Who with some books and some audio stuff. In any of those things, have you put in there some of the ideas that you maybe would have? carried yeah, on if the show would have actually a series from um big finish called something like the lost stories of the missing adventures lost stories yeah. yeah yeah and i i did a load of those working with ben aronovich and mark platt we we did a terrific job of introducing the new character of rain for instance so if anybody is interested in that um i'm particularly proud of a story called animal which i like a lot which i did in that that sequence so that gives some it gives some flavor what we might have done with the show had we carried on yeah, and yeah was, I'm really pleased yeah. Big Finish got to do, you know, did those because it was nice to sort of hear some of those ideas, you know, brought together and finally, finally put out there like Sylvester in the safe and all that, which you can just Thank imagine. You. Yeah, proud of that. And also, yeah. yeah, that was in a story called Crime of the Century. It's mm. a terrible title. That's not what we would have called it. Big Finish just insisted on that crappy title because <laughs> over the years <laughs> it had become attached to that story by the fans so they didn't want to disappoint the fans anyway crime of the century very good story animal very proud of that and also earth aid and mark did one called thin ice which was excellent too how much of that had you sort of planned if there had been another series though was it just a case of you'd made a few notes ideas or had you got yeah, sort of specific it, it, ideas it was just a few notes ideas just mm. uh, mostly verbal stuff it was stuff that ben had suggested and that we'd discussed together things like that and that mark had come up with yeah, and the Doctor take without ruining it for anyone because they are definitely worth getting. The Doctor does take Ace down quite a dark path, doesn't he? Which would have been very, you know, which is very interesting. What was the one thing that I'd really like to give credit to Big Finish for, um, and my producer David Richardson, um, is that when we were sitting down to, to and he he hired me to do that 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 series, which I was very pleased about. Um, he. I said to him, we were going to introduce the new character, and uh, I said, oh, David, it's, it, it's great having the new character reign, but it's, it's a shame that we're going to lose Sophie. And he said, well, you don't have to. We could have them both. Mm. And you see, he really was thinking outside the box, and that was such a great idea. So we, and we did, so we could have Sophie in all those stories, and we had Rain as well. It was just like having your cake and eating it. And I was really, really grateful to him for that, because it was such a thrill working with Sylvan Sophie again after all those years. Good old big finish. Good old big finish. All, we we do like our big finish, don't we, Gary? So, yep. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm, we're very glad they got made. Yeah. Um, and are you a fan of the show now, Andrew? Do you still watch it? Or well, I have a standard answer to that. So uh, <laughs> my apologies to anybody who's heard this before, but th- with the huge success of the show now, um, for me, what it's like is it's like seeing your ex-wife really happy with somebody new. <laughs> so <laughs> you're pleased for her, but you really don't want to know too much about it. So if I can put it like that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> and um, the uh, the stuff that we've mentioned, like the big finish and the books and stuff. Have you have you got anything else in the pipeline coming up, Doctor Who based? Do- Doctor Who related. Um, I am writing at the moment comics. I'm writing Doctor Who comics for the Doctor Who Adventures magazine, which is the kids' magazine. I've written a series of of comics for that, which are really fun to do. And I'm 
I'm incredibly busy at the moment. The reason I say that is I want to pitch a grown-ups Doctor Who story to um, Titan. And because Ben and I are doing this comic series with Titan spun off from his Rivers of London novels. If anybody's interested in Ben's writing, check out the Rivers of London novels and definitely check out the the comics as well, which I'm co-writing with Ben. So what I'm saying is I'm in an ideal position to sort of pitch ideas to Titan for a Doctor Who story. And I wanted, I'd very much want to do that. It's just a matter of finding the time. So so in answer to your question, uh, I'm doing Doctor Who comics at the moment mostly. I'll tell you what I am very excited for, uh, Andrew, is your new book that's coming out. And I'm not just saying this because you're on the show. I really, really love the concept of of this called The Final Detective. Oh, thank you. Well, this is a completely non-Doctor Who thing. I I know. I I heard you talking about it on another podcast, and I love vinyl and just the whole – just tell us what it's about because it sounds brilliant. What happened was um, Ben and I were both out of work for years after Doctor Who. And Ben became this big best-selling novelist. And if you haven't read the Rivers of London books, please look them out. They're, they're superb urban fantasy about the division of the London police that deals with the supernatural. And they're, they're superb. I'm not just saying that because he's my mate. I love him. So uh, Ben was this – suddenly this best – had gone from being broke to being this best-selling author. And I was still broke. And he said to me – he said, well, the trick is just write about what you really love. And I thought, well, what do I really love? And I thought, well, I love record collecting. I love jazz. And I love looking through old, you know, charity shops for old records, for, you know, treasure hunting for old vinyl. And so, and I love crime fiction. So I came up with this notion of the vinyl detective who's a record collector turned sleuth. And mm. stories is a murder mystery which hinges on a rare or valuable record. And so uh, I wrote the first one, I, written in Dead Wax, and I, then I wrote two more, and then uh, we, we sold them. I, Titan Books is bringing the first one out in May. As I said, it's called Written in Dead Wax. And then um, in May of each subsequent year, there's there's two more to come. And if the series is successful, there'll be more still. So if you if you like crime fiction, uh, if you like murder mysteries, then please do check them out. Thank you. I, I just love the sound of it. It sounds great. Well, you deserve a copy, mate. I'll, I'll autograph you as soon as it's out. Brilliant. I look forward to it. Uh, are you? Uh, are you? Do you still have a keen eye for a funky T-shirt as well? Are you, do you still? Because me and Gary love our our t-shirts do you still wear the funky t-shirts the thing is it's true i was famed at the bbc for my funky t-shirts and i I loved them but the the thing is and i still have them i still own them all i was looking through them the other day (laughs) i almost never wear them having said that um i was in america and i saw this t-shirt at walmart i just it was like a psychedelic crazy acid drenched t-shirt of a cat (laughs) so that you know i just thought i have to have that so sometimes i do i do occasionally succumb and buy a t-shirt even though i (laughs) I don't wear T-shirts anymore these days. But yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with a good T-shirt collection. No, you've got to love a T-shirt. Absolutely. So you've just come back from Gallifrey, Gallifrey 1, haven't you, Correct. in America? Yeah, and, and I'm just off to Dallas in April. Oh, wow. So how was Gallifrey 1? Was that, well, was I, loved, that... I absolutely loved it. I mean, Sean Lyons runs a terrific convention, and I love going to L.A., not least because I've got some very good friends out there. Uh, the, my buddy Joe Kramer, who's a big Doctor Who fan, is also a film soundtrack composer who did the music for Mission Impossible, uh, Rogue Nation, which is a huge success. Anyway, mm. Joe lives in L.A., so it was a wonderful opportunity to see Joe, to see, see old friends, and to go shopping for records. Very good record store in L.A. Do you think you could um, sneak me and Gary over in a case and just say you've got a couple of heavy scripts next time you go? Because we really want to go to Gallifrey one, don't we, Gary? We'd well, yeah. yeah. love to with, do that. Come up with a great panel and see what Sean thinks, you know. <laughs> do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping they'll invite me back. It's, 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 there's so many people for them to, to get over there. It's difficult to, you know, 
to, to get invited. But I hope you guys do go, and if you do, we can have a drink out there. That'd be amazing. I, I love all the. Co- I mean, I saw all the cosplay pictures um, being fired up on Twitter and stuff, and it just looked incredible. I love how how everyone just gets so into it over there. Yeah, yeah we have definitely got to do it. It is the biggest Doctor Who convention, but you, you shouldn't ignore the small ones. Like there's Regenerations, which is coming up soon, which my buddy I'm not going to this year, but my buddy Dominic Glynn is going to. Mm. Uh, that's in, that's in the states, and uh, that's run by. Oni and James who do, do a great con. I'm going to Dallas, which is Tim Miller's convention in April. In May, I'm doing a little convention called Coal Hill, a little boutique convention in New Hampshire, which oh. is fantastic. Con Casterbrus, Huntsville, Alabama, this ter- terrific con. And then I'm doing a Long Island Who for the first time in, in the autumn. So that's... Uh, do come to all of those. A busy great. bee. And also you're doing the, the Capitol, which I'm, I'm really hoping to get to, uh, in Gatwick. And there's oh, loads, right. loads of good people at that one, yeah. Yeah, uh, and also apparently I'm doing Nottingham, which is coming. Yeah. A busy bee. Yes, I am indeed that. <laughs> do you enjoy conventions, Andrew? Do you enjoy chatting to yeah. uh, Who fans? Well, and- I wouldn't do them if I didn't enjoy them. I like the opportunity for travel. Um, I, and I, I, do, I like hanging out with fans. And to be perfectly honest, there's also opportunities for me to go record shopping in all these places. So that's, <laughs> that's one of my reasons for doing it. It's, it's, it's very nice. But the, the fans are generally great people and they just want to hang out and I've, I've made some good and enduring friendships and met some really lovely folk doing it so yeah Doctor Who's brought a lot of good things in my way oh, fantastic um, and uh, could you remind people when um, when your books are coming out so you say the first one yeah, um, written well, in Dead Wax it's a double whammy because right. I'm writing these comics with Ben, the Rivers of London comics, and the first graphic novel collection comes out in April, and it's called Bodywork, Rivers of London Bodywork from Titan Books. So that's out in April, and it so happens that the Titan are also the publisher of my crime novel, written in Dead Wax, which is published on the 10th of May, so, uh, and, and available for pre-order on Amazon already, and incredibly cheap. So, uh, yeah, buy it there, I guess. Okay. And I don't get as much royalties, but what the hell, you know, buy the book, buy the book. So and no forgetting Script Doctor, sorry. Script Doctor is my uh, memoirs about working on Doctor Who. And if you're interested in the Sylvester McCoy era, it's a unique document and it's an excellent read. I mean, I say that myself because it's based on my diary. So it's a very factual account of the time, very accurate, and it's really like being there. Um, it's currently out of print from Milk, who are my wonderful publishers. I never know how to pronounce that. Yeah, Milk. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's like uh, the milk you drink. That's how you pronounce it, Milk. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. But... Um, they're they're hoping to bring it back, and while it is out of print, I, I sort of I'm doing limited print run convention editions. So if anybody gets in touch with me via Facebook, they can get it there, or turn up at a con, and I can sell them a copy in the meantime. It's re- it's really good. I mean, I I read it when it first came out, and I reread it two weeks ago because I knew we'd be chatting to you, and it's Bless it's a fascinating insight into into the McCoy era. And do you still keep a diary? You know what? Um, I don't. And by the time I got to the end of my tenure on Doctor Who, I was too busy to keep one. And right. since then, I feel I've been too busy. But however, there recently, without giving too much away, there's been the possibility of uh, working on a new television series. That That is looking more and more likely. Nothing's definite in the world of television. But the possibility of working on a new TV show is looking more likely than ever before. So... I've been thinking if I do start work on a new show, I will keep a diary or a journal for the duration of the show so I can write another memoir about it because it's such a fascinating process. And I love to capture snapshots of, of that creative process. So the answer is if I do a TV show, I will again keep a diary for a while. 
Oh, There's fantastic. some nice behind-the-scenes photos in here as well. I'm looking at you and Kate Eastill, is that how you're saying it? On the, Kate on Eastill, she was yeah. a secretary and she was the unsung hero of the show. She, there was me, John and Kate. She was the third member of the team and she was wonderful and really a, a great asset to Doctor Who. Yeah, great stuff. The um, Yeah, so The Script Doctor is a great book. Um, any of our listeners who are thinking of, of picking it up should absolutely pick it up. It's a like Adam said, it's a great insight into the show. And the the rerun that Milk did, that's the revised version, right? That's got like a load of extra pictures. Yeah, and- it's, it, the original edition had eight pages of coloured pictures. The, the uh, Milk version has 32 pages of coloured pics. And on top of that, it's got lots of added material like those audition scripts, which I mentioned, which were written when we were casting the new Doctor. They're included in it, which weren't in the original and other new material too. It's got intro by Stephen Moffat as well. It does itself. It, it does. does a nice little intro. Good stuff. Um, Milk always gives you loads of free little bits with the book, don't they? When you pre-order, like I opened it and all this great stuff fell out, like a little um, happiness patrol sticker and stuff. uh, Who runs Milk? Uh, It was one of the great days for me when he got in touch with me via Twitter. And their designer, Rob Hammond, is a genius too. So they're they're a really nice company. But just like everybody else, they're amazingly busy. And so it's hard for them to sort of... To, to keep the books coming out at the same rate as before. But hopefully, you know, they, they will continue to do so. There was a copy of an old BBC letter in there, like, as well, which I loved because um, Colin Baker wrote to me on one of those bits of paper with, like, the BBC logo and the TARDIS yeah, at the top. Right. And my mum put it somewhere safe and I never, ever saw it again. That's so it's really nice to get, like, uh, one inside this book where it was like, you know, just so I can remember it. I've still got a stack of those BBC uh, Doctor Who compliment slips. So if I see you guys, I, I can give you one. Oh, excellent. Oh, I would love that. Good stuff. We're hoping to get to the um, to the capital convention in Gatwick. Oh, well, I hope to see you there then, chaps. So we'll hopefully, uh, yes, we'll we'll have a, a natter there as well. Excellent, uh, Mr. Cartmel. It's been fantastic chatting with you. I'm, I'm glad we finally managed it, guys. Hey. Yes, yeah, yeah we finally got great. there. Uh, I have th- just one last question for you, Andrew. Far away, and that is, it's a nice, easy one. Um, do you still oh. want to overthrow the government? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I need to sort of backtrack on it. Like, I did say I wanted to overthrow the government, but I didn't mean that. What I meant was I wanted to bring down the government. And the distinction there is overthrow involves violent means and bring right. down involves bringing them down through the weight of their own corruption, through, through the <laughs> legitimate processes of democracy. And I would love to not overthrow, but to bring down the government, <laughs> because I do think it's a rubbish government at the moment. But let's face it, guys, I thought they've all been rubbish governments. <laughs> one I could say I wholeheartedly loved. So there you go. There you go. Could be an idea for a, a book right there. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Bringing down the government. <laughs> so thank you very much, Andrew. Um, and uh, yes, we will hopefully um, speak to you very soon. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. Cheers now. Once again, just want to say a big thank you to Andrew to take uh, the time out of his busy schedule to record with us because um, we've been emailing back and forth for about three weeks now, I would say. We emailed him and said we'd love to have you on the show to chat all things who. He was like, yeah, sounds good. Let's set it up. And then we set up a date and then he'd have to go off and do something. And then we'd set another date and then he'd have to go off to a convention. I think he went out to LA, didn't he, to... Uh, Gallifrey One wasn't Gallifrey it? One yeah. yeah then he came back he was like right I'm all set let's do it this time we're like no I can't do it he's like okay <laughs> let's do it then so um, yeah it's been a bit of a to and throw but um, fortunately he still made time to, to chat to us and uh, what a nice chap yeah I really enjoyed really enjoyed talking with Andrew yeah it's great 
he's a busy chap. I think I called him a busy bee. Um, yeah. So it's great that he, he found time to to talk to us today. And I I didn't want him to go actually. I I love talking about the McCoy era. <laughs> I was trying to cling on to him for as long as we could. Um, yeah, I found I thought it was really interesting. It was really interesting, and it was some things that uh, he spoke about that um, I hadn't heard before, like some of the references and little stories he he spoke about uh, Collins era. Mm. Um, I've not heard some of that stuff about um, uh, the, the the very dark stories, and because we know we know that period is very dark, but we didn't really understand um, the reasoning behind it, and some of the, also like very the the kind of social sort of uh, political things around the show as well about not having knives and all that kind of stuff you don't really hear about that or you know or have much uh, knowledge to that stuff so really insightful and he's he, he's one of those guys where you feel like you can chat to him for hours mm. yeah oh yeah i could i could have gone on forever yeah i think yeah there was loads i wanted to to talk about i, was, I mean there, there's a story in his script doctor book about when he he uh, he was in a lift with Eric Sayward, and I think it's the first time we met. And and I was going to ask him about that because I can't remember what happened. I think Eric said something to him, which he thought was he was being rude, but then it turned out it was actually a um, a joke, which he totally got. And I and I wish I could remember what it was because I was going to say to him about it. What what was that between you and Eric in the lift? But yeah, um, and also I was going to say to him that I've always wanted to, if I had a TARDIS, I've always wanted to go back to the BBC bar. Um, I would just love to go to that BBC bar and just look at the wealth of talent and yeah. performers that would have been in, in there, you know, back in the day, the golden era um, of BBC Television Centre as well. I, I just, yeah, I'd just love to do that. I can't imagine what it was like. You mentioned um, the BBC Television Centre. Um, when I went to London last weekend, um, uh, me and... Um, and the missus, we parked at Westfield Shopping Centre uh, to get on at White City, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> and as you come out of Westfield, you're right next door, opposite the road to Television Centre. And there is still something about that place that just holds this, like, magical sort of awe around it. I can't really explain it. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? So even though they've, they're, like, demolishing, like, one half of it and all the windows are taken out and they're doing loads of work... That place, you know, I don't know, it's just still got a, I don't know, very soft spot for that building. I, 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 yeah, I'm gutted what's happened to that building. It's one of those things I thought would be there forever. Yeah. I don't know what, you know, I grew up with it. It's always been there. I just never imagined that it would, it would get demolished. Um, I'm so glad that it's been preserved mm-hmm. on the, uh, you know, the drama and adventure in space and time okay yeah because it's so beautifully shot in that you mm-hmm. know and i think it was one of the last things to be filmed there so at least it'll live on forever in that excellent drama i haven't seen that in a while you know mm, get it on get it on so anyway we hope you enjoyed our uh, our catch up and chat with andrew um we're hoping to have some more interviews on the way um at some point throughout the year so we're going to try and bag a few more uh people that we want to talk to that have got a decent insight into um what goes on uh, behind the scenes with who, whether that's involvement directly with the TV show or something else. I don't know. We're just going to chat to um, chat to a few more people, which will be good. Mm. So next week, uh, we're back to normal format, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be <laughs> we're going to be going uh, back to classic, yeah, uh, classic Who. So next week, buddy, what are we going to review? Next week, it's giant green people <laughs> sat on very high chairs with some egg boxes behind them because it is uh, 
It's the fifth Doctor story. Four to Doomsday, if you didn't oh, guess. From four to Doomsday. Four to Doom. Where did this come from? Four to Doomsday, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So I was going to say, looking forward to that. I'm not sure if I am or not. <laughs> I'll tell you what, mate. I am actually really looking forward to it because okay. I haven't watched any Davison in a while. True. So, you know, main story and everything else aside, I am actually looking forward to um, old Cricket Jumper. Mm. So that'd be good. Yes. And next week, four to Doomsday. Uh, and we will do for episode 82 there. So just to finish off very quickly, thank you very much for uh, listening to the show as always. Back to normal format next week. Uh, so look out on the Facebook page for uh, the post for the Four to Doomsday. And uh, in order to, uh, to leave us a comment, it'd be great if you could like us on Facebook so you don't miss anything coming up in the future. Now you can also follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. Um, so you can get access to all these things on the website, bigblueboxpodcast.co.uk. Remember to check out Adam's channel, uh, The Geek's Handbag, over on YouTube and Facebook. And we look forward to your thoughts for next week's story. Until then, my name's Gary. My name's Adam. And remember... Uh...